0: The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and
1: welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, your host, and today I am welcoming to the podcast an old friend, someone I used to work with in my days on Capitol Hill, the current chief operating officer of the American Security Project, Andrew Holland. Andrew's area of research is on energy, climate change, trade, and infrastructure policy. For more than 15 years, he has worked at the center of debates about how to achieve sustainable energy security and how to effectively address climate change. He served as a legislative assistant for Senator Chuck Hagel of Nebraska around the same time that I was on the Hill working for Senator John Warner, and that is where we met in our respective Senate offices. He also worked in the U.S. House of Representatives, but this Senate snob always considers him first and foremost a former Senate staff. And he holds a master's degree in international strategy and economics from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, a school my son considered until he found out about the weather there, and a bachelor's degree in history and economics from Wake Forest University in North Carolina. It was such a wonderful conversation, listeners. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, we're going to play, whose line is it anyway? So here's the quote. Climate change is not science fiction. This is a battle in the real world. It's impacting us right now. And I wish I could have done it with the appropriate accent, which is my hint to you. Let's see if the RepublicEN.org team was able to get the right answer.
2: I'm thinking it's Senator Mike Braun of Indiana who said climate change is not science fiction. This is a battle in the real world. It is impacting us right now.
1: Oh, this sounds really familiar. Um, Is it Jeff Flake?
2: Hmm.
3: This is a tough call, but I'm going to say Senator Lindsey Olin Graham.
4: No clue who said it. But I'll guess that it's Newt Gingrich from about a
1: decade ago. And the right answer is former California governor and Terminator extraordinaire Arnold Schwarzenegger. And now my conversation with Andrew Holland. All right, listeners, I'm so excited to be here with my old friend from Capitol Hill days Andy Holland. Andy, hi. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to see you on Skype and to have you on the show.
5: Hi, Chelsea. Good to be with you. Yeah. Uh, many moons ago back on Capitol Hill.
1: Many, many moons ago. And before we get to so many moons back, I just want to go a few moons back and say that it was you who told Alex Bosmoski and Mm -hmm. me that we needed to know each other. I think you even did a little joint email. Like, how do you guys not know each other? You need to be friends. That's right. And Alex and I went and got coffee, and he was like, you have to work with us somehow. You need to know Bob. And in the beginning, he hired me to freelance, write some blog posts and stuff. Nothing really that big, but he was bound and determined to find a way to bring me into the fold. And here I am. It's been... Five or six years, and yeah. I can't imagine my life Amazing. without them. So thank you, thank Amazing. you.
5: Amazing, yeah. Well, you know, at that time there were so few of us in the center right world working on climate change that it almost uh, boggled my mind that you guys didn't know each other. Of course, now everybody <laughs> in the, uh, in the right, thanks to the work that you you're doing and and Bob's done and everything like that, the, the universe of those of us who care about this. From the center right has grown so much.
1: I wonder if it's grown, or if people are more comfortable admitting that they're in that universe.
5: Uh, it's a good question. I think it's both. Uh, it's grown, uh, and the ability to have a career out of it has grown as well. So that means that that you know people are. Uh, sourcing funding into it and uh, making investments into the communications and, you know, the work that needs to be done, the the actual infrastructure of a center-right climate movement that just frankly didn't exist.
1: So one thing it reminds me a little bit of is when we were on the Hill, as you will remember, if you can just dust those cobwebs out, you if you were doing something bipartisanly, you often couldn't just get one member of the other party to join you. You had to have kind of multiple people holding hands and jumping, as I like to say. So on the Lieberman-Warner bill, which I know your boss didn't co-sponsor, but we couldn't get one more Republican, we had to get three. And so I see that with the eco-right, that sometimes it's hard to say I'm, you know, I want to do something on climate action. You need to know that you have other friends with you. And so I think that is one thing that we have all done is help build that community of of folks willing to be open about it. The
5: permission slip, you know, that that you you look around and you see people who think like you and and, uh, want to work on this issue. It's important to have that.
1: So one little other dash down memory lane I wanted to take before we get into your current work, which is... um, also super critical to the movement is do you remember that dinner we had with our bosses in the chamber of commerce I think it was
5: very well in like their library in the chamber of commerce with a lot of their senior business leaders yeah
1: and like they locked the doors right we were locked in I feel like this library (laughs) (laughs) I just remember well I remember two things one That your boss, I had never met him, like shake hands with him in person before. And his eyes were so vividly blue that I felt a little um, like (laughs) awestruck. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) The other thing that I remember is we were sitting at this table. I don't even remember if dinner was served, Mm. maybe.
5: I think there was, there definitely was a dinner, I think.
1: I Uh, know there was booze, (laughs) not that I had any because I was with my boss, but (laughs) I remember everyone had to go around the table and talk about why they were there. And the whole time I was just thinking, I don't know why I'm here. I might have been one of the only (laughs) women, if not the only woman in the room. And so when they got to John Warner, he turned to me and was basically like, she's why I'm here. Chelsea, tell them about our bill. (laughs) And he made me do all the talking and Oh, yeah, that was one for the record books for sure.
5: Yeah, John Warner, what a treasure. He he really, uh, he he took a lead on that and did such a good good job, you know, kind of leading this pathway in, in those early years.
1: Uh, laying the beachhead is how he used to put it. Laying the beachhead. Like, yeah. Yep. Which brings us, that's a military term, which I didn't know until I started hanging out with him, but... Um, the work that you're doing at the American Security Project. For our listeners who have not heard of ASP, can you just take a second to describe your mission and what it is you've been doing and how long you guys, it's been, God, it's sure. probably been 15 years or so, hasn't it? Exactly
5: right. So, so American Security Project was founded 15 years ago, uh, almost exactly now, uh, by a bipartisan group of senators and former senators. Uh, and uh, so it was John Kerry uh, after his presidential run and Chuck Hagel, and then former Senators Gary Hart and Warren Rudman, who had just, if you remember the Hart-Rudman report, which predicted 9-11. And so they decided we needed a better bipartisan conversation on national security in the United States. We need to get away from kind of the partisan trench warfare of, you know, my national security is better than your national security, and if you, you know, if you oppose me, then you don't support the troops sort of stuff, you know, to get into a rational, fact-based, long-term thinking on national security. And so the first thing they did, I think really importantly, was the political types, the senators and former senators, then took a step back and said, we want this board to be populated by uh, admirals and generals and national security leaders, nonpartisan people who think about the security of the country first. And so they think long-term, they think in a, in a way that looks at American interests in a, a broad spectrum. Uh, and then they, they did a kind of scenario analysis and said, okay, what are the big challenges and big opportunities that our country faces? And it, challenges included terrorism. It still includes terrorism. Uh, nuclear weapons proliferation, um, economic competitiveness, but also climate change, energy security, and then also what are the opportunities we face? Scientific leadership and economic growth and all these sorts of things. So so we kind of look in, in the broad spectrum at all of these. So uh, we've had climate change and the threat that climate change poses to national security as one of our central topics since these early days. Um, before I even got there, they wrote what was called the Climate Security Index. And then one of the first things I put together was a big report in 2012 uh, called the Climate Security Report, which really laid out the uh, intellectual guidelines, I think, for you know why climate change is a threat to security, why security is different now in the 21st century than, you know, we were used to during the Cold War and World War II and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, talking about, uh, unfortunately talking about a lot of these threats that would come, which we've actually seen. You know, we've seen things like, you know we call this, this threat multiplier effect where, you know, a, a, a climate change isn't itself a threat, but it's a threat multiplier. It makes the other threats we see out there that much worse. And so we look around the world, and I could walk you around the world. <laughs> and, you know, is, but, but maybe that, that's kind of a, a good kind of introduction to ASV, uh, And you, you, Listeners, you can see more at org. Well, for
1: well, sure. And that threat multiplier term that you use, um, I will say – you, I believe that your board at American Security Project has had and has a lot of overlap with the Center for Naval Analysis, yeah. which had the 2007 report, National Security and the Threat of Climate Change. And that was a pivotal report for getting my boss, John Warner, to want to engage on climate change because it really did, as you know, ASP and, and some of your other partners out there have shown, make those links. And the exactly. threat multiplier part really resonated with him. And just to kind of give our listeners an example, and you probably have way better ones, but if you already have a region that is has a scarcity of natural resources, and then those scarcities are made worse because of climate change, so think droughts or food scarcity because right. of agricultural shifts, then you are making the 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 threat worse.
5: Yeah,
1: it's the U.S. Yeah. Indiana- it, it,
5: it undermines human security. It undermines the people's ability to, to provide for themselves and for their families. And then what often happens is that they blame the government for that. And so, so by blaming the government, they become uh, real recruit, recruits for insurgencies, for anti-government, anti-societal sort of groups. They can join terrorist organizations. They can radicalize themselves through Facebook like some Americans do and, you know, all this sort of stuff. It, it, so we, we should we've certainly seen it more in already unstable areas of the world. Think Syria during the civil war. Think Bangladesh, India border, uh, Myanmar, the Rohingya refugees. Think uh, sub-Saharan Sahel, Africa, um, that sort of stuff. But certainly you're right that this isn't something that is simply restricted to these, you know, far flung areas of the world. You know, it's a threat multiplier along the American-Mexican border. You know, it is something uh, already, you know, starved of water, um, seeing, you know, a mega drought probably in in the happening. uh, And it's driving migrants, driving people towards the American border uh, it's undermining um, agriculture on both sides of the border. So the, these sorts of things, uh, yeah, they accelerate instability. They multiply already existing threats and, you know, could tip areas into insecurity and even conflict.
0: We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at RepublicEN.org. Now back to this week's episode.
1: You said the magic word, which is refugees. And uh, one of our volunteers a few years ago wrote an op-ed that basically said, if you're somebody who cares about immigration policy... You should care about climate change because there are going to be implications on the numbers of people trying to seek refuge here as they're escaping the effects that they're seeing in their own countries we're going to have our own impacts here um in the us for sure and one thing just to kind of keep it more domestic yeah you know looking at the bases that are going to be impacted that are already being impacted by sea level rise i think that's a really big um, argument right there why we need to be doing something
5: Totally. You know, uh, so Norfolk Naval Base is the largest naval base in the world. It's how uh, how the U.S. Navy projects power into the Atlantic and uh, throughout the whole world. Uh, it also happened, it's in the Hampton Roads area, which unfortunately happens to be both a um, hotspot for sea level rise and also land subsidence. So the land is going down at the same time seems- as the seas are going up. So... <laughs> So it's a problem. Uh, and so what that means is that you have, to, you have to build higher piers, higher docks to be able to protect ships. You have to be able to, to build seawalls. You have to basically what you have to do is plan and spend money. And you can protect it and you can do it, but you have to do the planning and you have to spend the money. And so it's really important that the military be allowed to do this sort of stuff, to be allowed to plan. They're really good at planning. You know, they think long term and they can do this sort of planning, uh, but they they have to be allowed and even encouraged to do it. And we've actually seen uh, bipartisan majorities in Congress over the last three, four years inserting um, pieces into bills. The National Defense Authorization Act is the annual um, defense uh, policy document. There's been bipartisan majorities, uh, you know. Republicans and Democrats putting these, these pieces in there, telling the DOD, hey, this is happening. Give us an, al- an analysis of where you think is most vulnerable uh, and what, what needs to be done, done about it. And now they're actually starting to spend money on it and think about it and, and kind of build ways to prevent these things.
1: Well, um, you just sort of sparked a memory of the Quadrennial Defense Review
5: yeah, QDR.
1: Yeah, I haven't really thought about a QDR in a few years. Have they had one under the Trump administration? So,
5: so the the QDR, um, based on the 2016 NDAA. So, to get into arcane stuff, the QDR has been supplanted by the NDS, the National Defense Strategy.
1: Gotcha. So, gotcha. The National
5: Defense Strategy was put out in 2018, uh, written by uh, under Mattis. Uh, And uh, so that think of that as the QDR and notably includes no mention of climate change. Hmm. So, you know, we actually did a report at ASP right after that came out uh, saying climate change is in it. If you read between the lines, you know, Jim Mattis is smart enough to know not to actually write climate change in there, but You know, it's in there as part of the planning. You have to start thinking about this stuff. You know, he he is worried about unstable regions of the world. He's worried about great power competition. Climate change plays a part in that sort of stuff. Uh, And we we have a report on our website that kind of highlights how climate change is a, a part of that, even though it's not actually written in the document.
1: Well, I just think that overall, the fact that so many of these top military advisors, both past and present, are engaged on this issue should be a real, um, a real, uh, we were talking earlier about the permission slip, you mentioned the permission slip. So for those who maybe they see climate change as, you know, a tree hugger issue, or even our own own executive director, Bob Inglis said he used to be against it because Al Gore was for it. If you trust our military, then you should trust that climate change is a problem we need to be managing.
5: That's right. And, and you know, the military, uh, unlike, unlike a lot of us, honestly, uh, the military has to live in a real world with real consequences, right? Uh, for a lot of people, climate change is still a bit amorphous,
1: right? It's abstract. abstract. They can't,
5: you know, temperatures go up by two degrees Celsius. Well, I mean, the temperature fluctuates by more than that day to day, you know, so it's, it's a bit abstract for military people. It is not abstract. The seas are rising. The, you know, the storms are worse and there are consequences to that. You know, people are being radicalized in, uh, you know, the Sahel and Syria, like we said before Because of droughts, because of weather changes. So, you know, when you have to live in the reality based world uh, and deal with, you know, consequences, I think that that kind of focuses the mind.
1: So kind of taking it back to real world, um, how are you spreading your message these days? I know in the past you would hold a lot of briefings. I've been to some of those briefings. Um, You know, a little bit of travel, definitely in your docket, but now everyone's uh, grounded. And so how are you managing? Yeah,
5: yeah, you know, the work continues. Uh, So ASP, really since 2013, you know, with episodic ups and downs, Uh, has taken our admirals and generals and other members of what we call our consensus for American security. This is our our group of validators and board members and such uh, around the country to talk about this to audiences. We particularly focus on, um, you know, sort of non not the usual crowd for environmental groups. So we, we try not to go to the Sierra Club and and stuff like that. We try to get in front of the chambers of commerce, you know, the the local. World Affairs Council, all that sort of stuff, uh, and talk to these people in a rational, fact-based way, you know, lay it out. Uh, And so you're right. We used to go around the country and do this. But we still can go around the country a lot easier doing it virtually. So actually, our organizers that we work with uh, are still in in their home states and and, uh, are able to organize people through Zoom, and uh, we've had really great success um, briefing senior people and hosting events. We just did an event uh, early September in, uh, well, not in, but it focused on Arizona. Uh, and we, we talked all about Arizona issues and we brought in Arizona people. And, and you know, it was 150 people from all across Arizona, mostly. Wow. Uh, so, you know, without having to get on an airplane. So it's a new model for this sort of stuff. So we continue to do it. We've got another one coming up in uh, focused on Colorado. And, you know, these areas, we kind of choose them. You know, you can you can think about them politically, obviously, for purple districts. But also, you you really we do choose them for these kind of intersections of where uh, there's a lot of military and retired military people. Uh, So they're open to hearing about it. And there's a lot of uh, there's places that you already are seeing impacts fires in Colorado and and Arizona and, you know, sea level rise in in Florida. We've done a lot of work over the years in Florida. It's, it's, you know, so many veterans and active duty people down there. And and the impacts are, are, are obvious and clear. So North Carolina, we've done a lot, you know. So, Are these
1: events that, if a listener was interested, they could find future events on your website and join in?
5: Yes, absolutely. Uh, on our website, uh, there, there's none on there right now, um, but go on our website, sign up for our newsletter, and on your newsletter, you'll get invited to them and and uh, get in, in that way.
1: So one more question for you. You're sharing all of these messages, this link you have... Um, good validators, is there any sort of policy prescription that you guys support at ASP or are you just kind of like get something done?
5: <laughs> so, so ASP, as we kind of see ourselves as a, we're a national security organization, mm-hmm. right? So, so we play in this on the NDAA, on the mm-hmm. National Defense Authorization Act. We play on various areas like that. And actually, you know, we we do some work on technology stuff as well, pro-nuclear, pro-advanced nuclear nuclear things and uh, R&D budgets and that sort of stuff. But uh, the way we see it in terms of like a whether a cap and trade or carbon tax or
1: Green
5: (laughs) Green New Deal, all that sort of stuff, it's not our job. Yeah. Chelsea, that's your
1: job. Oh, don't like don't give me <laughs> that <laughs> dead cat. No way. <laughs> no,
5: I, mean, I have my my personal thoughts on it and I know what what I would do and, and everything like that. I actually
1: think, yeah.
5: you know, the idea that we're going to do one climate bill and then we're going to wash our hands of it is crazy. We're, we're going to be doing climate change for the. The rest of our careers, yes, and uh, you know, there's always going to be legislation on it and stuff to do on it. So, you know, it, it, it's just it's that big and that that important of an issue.
1: I really think it is going to be, and it is not. It's going to be one of those cross-cutting issues that the farm bill is going to be a climate bill. Tax bills are going to be climate bills. Um, When I was, you know, I used to do the Water Resources Development Act, both on the Hill and and off for a while. And with Senator Kerry, you know, one of your founders, we worked on this amendment that the Army Corps of Engineers had to calculate for climate change impacts when they were um, developing their projects. And I think it's things like that, that at the time back in, I don't remember when we were doing that, maybe it was 2007, before I worked for Warner just seemed like people thought we were crazy. What, why would the Army Corps calculate the impacts of climate change? But they're building infrastructure projects all around the country. Totally. And a lot of them, you know, dealing with the same issues at Norfolk, sea level rise. That's and-, right.
5: and, and what they're doing is, you know, engineers build based on a baseline from the last 50 years or something like that. So if the climate has changed, from what the last 50 years looked like. It's pretty crazy to build your stuff based on that. So let's let's do a little foresight, a little forward leaning and that sort of stuff. And and it's amazing how controversial that stuff could
1: be. I know. Well, I know we both have big jobs and a lot of work left to do. I I kind of like your thought that there's some Uh, job security (laughs) climate (laughs) change even if it is a little sad yeah
5: (laughs) yeah no we'll we'll be working on this for for a long time unfortunately
1: it it occurred to me the other day that the first McCain-Lieberman bill was 17 years ago and that made me feel very old
5: (laughs) wow 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 wow. 2003 look at that I know I know
1: well, I appreciate everything you do. And I, you know, as I said, this message, I know that it works for moving people.
5: Thanks, Chelsea. Great to be with you. And, and you know, just just keep in touch. And, and all of you listeners, uh, go to our website. Let us know how, how we can help you and, and everything like that
3: as well. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Eco-Right Speaks. Price Atkinson here, and you've heard us talk about field trips before. We hosted one with Congressman John Curtis in Utah. We hosted one with Congressman Francis Rooney down in Florida. Uh, but last week, we had a special opportunity to host a field trip at the South Carolina Botanical Gardens with a handful of conservative state house members, and I wanted to share a little bit about the trip and, and bring it to life here on this week's podcast. Our good friend, Judge Gary Clary, a retiring conservative in the state house in Columbia, somebody you've heard here on this podcast, and a great friend of us at Republican, helped us organize the field trip with three of his colleagues, joining us at the Botanical Gardens on the campus of Clemson University. And the trip was co-sponsored by our friends at the Audubon Society, and we had South Carolina State House members Neil Collins, Wes Cox, and Jason Elliott on hand with us to see and hear just how climate it has impacted the region and specifically the botanical gardens itself. And leading the field trip was Patrick McMillan, an award winning host at Clemson University of an ETV nature program, expeditions with Patrick McMillan. He has over 20 years, uh, or had over 20 years of experience at the Botanical Gardens as he is leaving, literally leaving this week to drive to Washington State to take a new position at a prestigious gardens there. Uh, But he gave us his experience in, in botany, um, you know, in, in nature, as a naturalist, biologist, educator, has got a range of experience uh, as a conservationist. And the purpose of this tr- field trip was was quite simple. For those on hand to see firsthand changes that are occurring in South Carolina's climate, illustrating the risks made manifest by recent weather events and projecting a future of Of costly ramifications if climate change continues unabated. And during the hour walking tour, Patrick started by explaining how many of the plants, trees, in particular horticulture, had changed due to its inability to grow in such warm conditions now. Uh, As the 10 degree temperature rise and average winter low has changed the grounds from when, when, when they once had hostas and azaleas that dominated the grounds to now where you'll see more agaves and even palmetto trees. Right, looks like almost sometimes in spots of the garden right out of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, but a self-described conservationist, Patrick explained, how unique this area of the country is where the southern Blue Ridge Mountains we sit at the base of are are being are one of the most resilient climate spots in the world. And the amount of people buying property and flocking to this region is huge. He also cited a recent study by the Rhodium Group that was analyzed by ProPublica in the New York Times uh, with every single county in the U.S., that was determined and studied to determine the risk of quote compounding calamities in regard to climate change number 1 on that list Beaufort county in the low country of south carolina home to where Bob Inglis grew up in Bluffton, South Carolina. It was number one on the list of counties at the greatest risk of life-altering and life-threatening climate change. Change in the effects are happening across the state of South Carolina, which we saw at the Botanical Gardens, uh, and they're happening everywhere. But afterwards, Patrick shared what he most wanted everyone that was with us to take away from the morning.
4: You know, one of the biggest points is that we're all right smack dab in the middle of a changing climate with dealing with more volatility you know and it impacts every facet of our lives and livelihood but the thing that i really wanted to bring today was how people how we have always been a driving force in the generation of life around us and how the choices we make in this age when we we just have to adapt right, <laughs> right? it's 2020 <laughs> it's adaptation man yeah. uh, and and that's been our traditional role. South Carolina has been a leader in so many areas that we don't get credit for, um, from you know be, having the first natural heritage program in the in the country, uh, protecting our green spaces on the state level. Um, it, I think it's high time we recognized we need to be a leader in this too. As yeah. parts of our parts of our state are some of those parts that are most at risk, and other parts are going to be the places that everybody
3: wants to be. Right. Our good friend and outgoing state house member Gary Clary said after the field trip, he hoped his colleagues would see the leadership opportunity within the state.
6: I think that the way Patrick has uh, has developed the gardens here in, in his leadership and the way in which uh, we see our climate changing right in front of us uh, with the diverse plantings that we have and and everything that is going on here, that this should show us that this is truly a bipartisan issue, uh, but more importantly, I invited invited my Republican colleagues to be with me because uh, Republicans need to be taking the lead on climate change in, in this state and in this country. Uh, in this state in particular, mm-hmm. uh, we have the majority in both houses, and uh, quite frankly, if we don't do something about it, who is? And we're at the point we're we're at the tipping point now, to where we have to do something to uh, stop this climate change and to reestablish our environment as we have known
3: it in our lifetimes. So, what was the biggest takeaway from the field trip from each of Gary's conservative state house colleagues? Here's Neil Collins and what he had to say.
7: Uh, well first and foremost the uh, uh, Clemson Botanical Gardens are beautiful and um, the range of diversity that is grown here um, fascinating that we are able now to uh, grow some species that grow well in the desert and uh, the I'm a data guy, so uh, hearing about the temperature rise and uh, the volatility of precipitation uh, is interesting for me. Um, we're definitely losing a, a good resource with professor here, but um, I, you know I think it's definitely worthwhile adventure and uh, that we need to learn more and more about how it's affecting us. And I also, I think the biggest thing uh, that i uh, taken away from it is that uh, humans definitely impact uh, climate and our environment and where we live, but we can do that in a positive way.
3: And State House member Wes Cox. I think the main takeaway
4: was that you know, the positive impact that humans can have on the environment when we try to work within, you know, natural boundaries and, and with science. We really just—not all human interaction with nature and the environment has to be negative. We we can we can have positive impacts when we when we look at the science and try to try to you know work with nature as if it's a
3: person as well. And state House member Jason Elliott. Uh, What I learned
0: and reconfirms to me is that climate change and the ramifications of it—it's a big deal to us in South Carolina. You know, when I learned that we have the extremes in a good way and a bad way, Beaufort County is the most susceptible, pretty much in the country, to climate change in the future. And we have one of the places in the northwestern part of the state, the Blue Ridge Escarpment, Southern Appalachian Mountains, that is the most resilient. So there's opportunity uh, on both ends of our state to, to make a difference. You know, people live in South Carolina and come to South Carolina because of the economy and the, and, and the natural resources mm-hmm. which go hand in hand. And uh, we've got to maintain that. And if we don't, we're gonna lose what, what we have. You know, the, the, we always talk about, we're not four things, and we, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, our backyard is the uh, mountains. And then our backyard also is the coast of South Carolina. Yeah. And we're at risk of losing both of those things and our, and our economic uh, vitality if, if we don't, in the very near term, immediate term, uh, take steps to um, mitigate climate change and the effects it's going to have.
3: Finally, our executive director, Bob Inglis, shared his own parting thoughts and the opportunities for other conservative lawmakers everywhere around the country to simply go out and see the real, local, intangible impacts of climate change from respected people and leaders just like Patrick McMillan.
2: Yeah, I think it's really impressive to the changes that are have taken place that are evident right here in Clemson, South Carolina, in this garden, make the case that it's real. And, um, and also, I think that the way that Patrick explained it is that uh, we're not an invasive species, we humans. In fact, we can actually help build diversity in the environment. Um, so um, we have a role to play, stewards of the garden, surely, And uh, also, um, we can help make the garden flourish. (laughs) Yeah, I hope what these state house members heard today is that from somebody who describes himself as a conservative and a conservationist, um, is that uh, people aren't the problem. People can be part of the solution here. And I hope that they can take that back to their conservative constituents and say you know what? There's a story for conservatives to tell here about climate change. It doesn't have to be that, you know, the caricature of the environmental group that says the optimal human population is zero. That's not what Patrick McMillan was saying here today at Clemson's Botanical Garden. He was saying, no, humans have an important role to play in the ecosystem. We just need to play it. And we need to be uh, smart about how we do things, so that we end up with rich diversity in the uh, in the ecosystems and uh, preserve the beauty of it and the um, the many species that uh, make us a special place. And so, what we saw here in South Carolina is true across the country. And if more conservatives, uh, state house and senate members, get out and hear from people like Patrick McMillan. In places like this, their backyards, they'll find out that oh yeah, it's really, it's it's real, and you there's no there's no winning an argument with the thermometer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's no winning an argument with the the data. So I hope what happened today is that they're more equipped now to go dispel that ideology that wants to dismiss climate science because they can say, you know what? Go over there to the Botanical Garden at Clemson, and you will see it.
1: Price, we are inching up on episode 20, and I'm so excited.
3: Me too. Um, we've come a long way in a short period of time, and it's very Uh, very very exciting and uh, i'm excited uh, to continue to keep doing this i'm excited uh, about the latest review that we got and i want to read that now which you can give us a review on apple podcast if you so choose we would love to get a uh, star rating from you uh, one through five stars and if you'd like to say something about uh, the podcast we would love uh, for you to uh, to do so So let me read this review. Uh, This one came in uh, just a couple days ago. Uh, Quote, nice to see someone in the Republican Party not only advocate for climate change, but offer pragmatic ways for reaching across the aisle to break the logjam. Never heard of John Curtis before. I wish there were more folks like him in Congress. I'm a right leaning, independent and business owner. Chelsea so kindly mentioned in a recent episode. I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party made climate and the environment a priority. Keep pushing to swing the pendulum back in the right direction. Maybe they'll win me back. So that is wow, from uh, that's great. Yeah, every nickname with Jim is taken. So um, appreciate that person writing that review because um, finding a somebody that is a somebody with conservative roots that um, does believe in climate. Those are people that we're trying to reach, but uh, we appreciate uh, him taking the time or her taking the time. And anybody that's written a review up until this point, we will read it here on the podcast.
1: We sure will. And it just makes my day to know that we are reaching people and that we are connecting folks like that reviewer with great lawmakers like Mr. Curtis. And, you know, in this episode, obviously we talked to my pal, Andrew Holland, who I know from way back when we were on the Hill together. And, you know, I just think that he and I definitely worked in the Senate at a time when there was more bipartisanship, when it wasn't a dirty word, when you could, you know, come together with the other side of the aisle and do things. And, you know, we both left the Hill around the same time. You'd really, really, really have to, like, I don't know what you would have to do to get me to go back these days. But uh, anyway, it was really fun to catch up with Andy and and have that conversation and share it with our listeners.
3: Yeah, there is no, uh, on the House side, quote unquote moderates, I guess so to say, you know, if you want to call them by the political term. But they're no longer there. You know, they've gotten picked off. Yeah. You know, you get primaried if you even come off that uh, partisan left or right wall. And so. You know, people like uh, Sherry Bowler, who was a longtime chairman of the House Science Committee, somebody like uh, Heath Schuler who was a Blue Dog Democrat, you know, the mm-hmm. Tuesday group, you know, the Blue Dogs, those moderate groups, there's just very, very few of them there. And it's all hard right, hard left. It's so hard to get those f- people that are even further apart to even come to the middle to have a conversation.
1: Yeah, it's a sad thing. Um, I do hope that You know, Depending on how things turn in November, um, one thing that uh, another old friend of mine who works on the Hill pointed out is that if Democrats pick up more seats in the House, that they will be of the blue dog variety. And I think even if you look at some of those close Senate races, um, kind of the same thing. So maybe we can find that messy middle or the far middle, as our pal Nick Huey likes to say. Uh, maybe we can see some more of that, um, that sort of ideology, uh, or at least level of cooperation um, back in our, our Congress that we love so much.
3: (laughs) You stumped me in the uh, whose line is it this week, but I wanted to in that last segment, I, you know, put together and you heard audio from the lawmakers uh, from here in South Carolina that joined us for our field trip uh, at the South Carolina Botanical Gardens late last week. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, Put this plug in because Gary Clary, who we've obviously had as a guest on here, he's Judge Clary, uh, retiring a state house member, uh, somebody that believes in you know everything that we do. He really, really helped us do a lot of the hard work and getting that field trip together late last week. And so I just wanted to you know shout him out and say thank you again because those kind of partnerships. That, uh, that are lasting and and that proved a, 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 just a wonderful event that we had uh, over at Clemson last week. Uh, Gary was so instrumental in making that happen.
1: And, you know, again, it just sort of affirms for me that what we're doing here is important. That is, you know, Mr. Clary, Judge Clary is somebody who I didn't know until I saw that op-ed of his. And then, you know, that just sort of was the snowball that we got rolling. And to be able to get him on the podcast and then forge that kind of relationship where he wanted to do more and he wanted to, to participate in this field trip. I believe he wanted me to go on it. Unfortunately, (laughs) uh, wasn't able to make it happen this time, but a future field trip for sure.
3: He did tell me, he said, yes, tell Chelsea, uh, I said hello and sorry that she couldn't join us. I said, well, being eight hours away, it wasn't just down the street, eight minutes. So uh, but he understood. And, uh, but yeah, appreciate Jason Elliott, um, Neil Collins and Wes Cox uh, state house members for coming out and spending uh, a few hour or an hour with us over at the botanical gardens. But uh, Chelsea, uh, until next week, got another good one on tap.
1: We sure do. It'll be our 20th episode. Wow. Our podcast is 20 weeks old Uh, to be. And we are featuring Mr. Um, Francis Rooney from Florida. So another Florida voice. We've had a lot of them. um, But I think that just goes to show that Florida is on the front lines and, you know, super happy to bring his perspective as one of the um, active lawmakers in the House of Representatives who is supportive of carbon pricing. And, you know, they're there, it's a small club, as we know. So, super excited to have that conversation with him and bring it to our listeners.
3: All right. Until then, we will us uh, we will see you then. Appreciate everybody listening, downloading, subscribing. Tell a friend. Uh, let a friend know. Send it to them uh, via text. Tell them about it on the phone. Uh, send them an email. Let them know how they can find us. And appreciate all our loyal listeners, Chelsea. And we will do it again next week.
1: Sure thing. See you, Bryce.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco-Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local Eco-Right leader.